It's Alex Pearson, and this is On Point. And on the podcast today, we'll talk about some changes the Trudeau government wants to make when it comes to what you share online and the costs to streaming. All of it's important and not getting talked about enough. We'll also talk about a COVID denier who didn't believe about any of this pandemic until his cousin died of COVID and he got it himself. He talks about how he's now paying it forward to frontline workers. And we'll talk about the cost to women in this pandemic. They've been hit the hardest as far as job loss and what we need to look for when it comes to the recovery plan. Let's get started. That is your podcast for today. You can hear us, of course, Monday through Friday, live on point, starting at 6.30 through 10. I'm Alex Pearson. Today marks 19 years since the horrific terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Today, we remember the people we lost in this unthinkable tragedy. They were neighbors, friends, and family. As we pay tribute to their lives, let's also remember the bravery and the sacrifice of all the first responders who arrived on the, arrived on the scene and rushed into buildings as others were fleeing. 19 years, hard to believe, but this is where we are. We remember thousands murdered on that day, including 26 Canadians, and this day moves further away, which is why we must not forget. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, September 11th. And um, we don't talk about it as much. I mean, gone are the, the documentaries that ran for hours and the memorials are are smaller, but it is one of those very historical days where, you know, we all know exactly where we were at that moment. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember every minute. And at that time, I was still a very young TV reporter at a different station, and I was uh, live on air. I was anchoring. And that's when the second plane went into the building, because in the early minutes, we, we all thought that a prop plane ha- had gone through one of the buildings, which was bad enough at in itself. But then when that second plane, a a large jet plane slammed into the second tower and it was carried on live, you know, TV, it just, it just sucked the air out of me. I was, I I just gasped. I I couldn't talk. Like, what do you say? Nothing certainly that would uh, be acceptable. I mean, it's, it's all that I could do because at the moment, at that very moment, I mean, it was very clear. A terror attack was being uh, carried out against Americans on American soil, which changed our lives forever. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. (gasps) Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. That was definitely looked like it was on purpose. And we see this extraordinarily and frightening scene behind us of this second tower. 
now just encased in smoke. What is behind it, I, I cannot tell you. But just look at that. That is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. And that is the sounds of that second building falling down. I mean, the World Trade Centers came down. It, it, it still it still blows my mind. But I was I was rushed out to Pearson Airport uh, the second that second plane went into the building because we were hearing you know police reports of hijacked planes coming into Pearson and, and the airspace had been closed down. So I would end up spending days out there, probably four. It was four days for sure out there reporting, and it was totally silent because of course there was no planes. They were all sitting in Gander, Newfoundland. And it wasn't until I got home late at night where I would see the footage from the day, certainly in the, the, that first day. And that's when I understood the enormity of the situation. I knew the towers fell because I heard it on the radio, but I hadn't seen it. You know, I knew people were jumping from the buildings, rushing out of the buildings, that firefighters were rushing in. But then you see the images and the carnage, and, and it just it just hit me like a brick. I mean, it's kind of weird when you're in the news business. You, you always know what's going on. But when you're on assignment, you tend to go into your own little bubble. And so you often don't know what else is going on until you see it in its totality in the news. Especially back then because we didn't have social media. We didn't have this 24-7 noise of news that just kind of is always in front of your face. And then, you know, as the days would go on, we'd start to learn of the who. Who was killed? And... Days later, I'd find myself knocking on the door of the Basniki home, where I would be greeted by Maureen and her kids, Erica and Brennan. And I would sit with them as they shared their grief over losing a dad and a husband. Because Ken Basniki, he was at meetings on the 106th floor of the North Tower when Flight 11 hit. He, he, he just started this new marketing job and he was going to the World Trade Center for meetings. And he couldn't reach Maureen because she was traveling, uh, you know, she was a, she, she worked in the airline business and she was uh, on a stopover in, in Germany and he couldn't reach her. So he called his mother to tell her that the room was full of smoke and, f and filling and he couldn't get out. And then the line uh, went dead. So I always think of them at this time of year. And I certainly think of Maureen because she's been such a warrior, uh, someone who is just absolutely, um, you know, taken this and dedicated her life to fighting terror. And she, she's a driving force behind the renaming of September as a, a national day of service for this country, because her goal, you know, is to inspire Canadians to keep showing the kind of kindness and, and generosity that we saw on that day. She doesn't want that to stop. And I've talked to her about the passage of time, you know, does it get easier as we move away from it? And, and it doesn't. But she tries to be positive and, and fight for the victims of terror as well as those of, of violence. And she's been very outspoken about how little support these families get. And so I think it's really important as, as kids grow up, you know, the millennials who are just, just babies back then, but we move away from this day. I think the least we can do is pause and remember those murdered and the families left behind. But also to remember those killed near India terror bombing and those recently murdered on Iran Flight 752. I mean, we don't talk much about terror these days, but it exists. And worse, I mean, governments after government after government have promised supports and they just turn into hollow words. I mean, Brian Mulroney promised families of those killed on Air India that, that, that Canadians and, and the government would help. And they've been, they've been totally ignored. 
and those murdered on that Iran flight just months ago. I mean, it was just a couple of, a few months ago. Uh, they were promised by Trudeau himself, who stood with them, that, that they'd be supported. And now they, they too feel totally forgotten. So I know that folks are very excited about the Raptors game, that people are really distracted by life. But if you can spare just a thought or two and, and remember back to that day of those who are murdered on, on this day, and, and the 26 Canadian families whose lives were absolutely uh, ripped apart. And for those frontline, you know, frontline workers who ran in as others ran out. And a lot of those have died uh, because they drank in all the poisons from those buildings and the scene and, and, you know, died in the decades to follow. So that's, you know, it, I know we're, we're 19 years away from it, but, but I just still think it's very important, very important to remember. We do have a very busy show today. We're going to talk about a couple of big stories that we're going to have that will have a very big impact on your bottom line. One involves a, a clean fuel tax that's about to be launched on top of the carbon tax. And it's coming at a time when we can least afford it. And then the other one is uh, about internet regulations that are going to censor the information we get, but it'll also add new taxes to streaming services. And the Trudeau government said that they would not tax that. So we're going to talk about that at seven o'clock, but we're also going to talk about this because while you know, folks keep flipping out about what Donald Trump told Bob Woodard, Justin Trudeau was asked you know, today at a scrum when he knew about the virus, and he said January 2nd. But listen to what our health minister told CTV about the pandemic warning system, which was something that was set up after SARS. It was set up to protect us so that anytime there was a pandemic and outbreaks that we would know about it. And of course, the Trudeau government basically dismantled it. No one at the political level knew that it had been sidelined. It was an administration decision made by the Public Health Agency of Canada and by the leader at that time uh, of the agency who decided that it would be better for the information network to focus its efforts on more domestic issues and domestic concerns. And so, in fact, uh, when I became the Minister of Health, was completely unaware that this uh, health information network existed and, in fact, had changed its focus so significantly. She didn't know. I mean, the health minister, nor anyone else in that government, they didn't know. I bet Jane Philpott knew. And yet, you know, she says she was briefed of the dangers in late December. Trudeau was briefed on this January 2nd. The liberal cabinet had dire warnings saying that this was very dangerous. And yet for months they did nothing. All we heard was, we're ready. This is low risk. We have all the stuff we need. You know, we were being told not to wear masks. They didn't shut down the borders. They just kept letting thousands of travelers come in from China and Iran. And then we were called racist. And up to the third week of March, Canadians were just travel. And not once in all those months did they check the supplies to protect us. Instead, they threw out the masks and gave China 16 tons while China lied to the world and, and hoarded all the supplies. So sure, freak out about Trump. Fair enough. He didn't handle it better. But our government did no better. In fact, they did nothing for months. So look, it, it's at least starting to get out. But, you know, it's great that we're going into a second possible wave. Are, are they ready now? I mean, should we believe them? The Trudeau government made it clear they wanted to regulate the internet. It's what they're planning to do that's nutty. So when the House sits next week, a bill will be tabled that plans to bring in new digital sales tax, something they said that they'd never do. It will give the CRTC 
overarching powers to regulate payments from online streaming services like Netflix and will mandate that they run CanCon, even if it's crappy. It will also mean internet platforms will have to pay licensing fees for links to news articles. So what this means for you, the consumer, is that prices are going to go up, not for the tech companies. And Canadians are not going to be allowed to share news links from reputable sources. So what it does is not solve any of the real problems of online hate or things like fake news. And it drives up costs for us while censoring your information. Michael Geis is a law professor and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. So this is your particular area of expertise. So I'm glad uh, you are talking about it and able to join us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So... It's a complicated situation because there's a number of things that the Trudeau government are trying to do, but there are changes that need to be made. It's just that none of these actually make sense. I mean, it will essentially, I think, um, do nothing to actually change the problems that exist in the Internet, but it'll create others. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we don't know the specific timing of when all this will be introduced, but it's been pretty clear that it's coming. And certainly the Heritage Minister, Stephen Guibault, has been doing a bit of a tour around various cultural stakeholder groups, really try promoting what he has in mind. And as you indicated, he's talking or they're talking about more taxes or new taxes on the internet. They're talking about mandated CanCon and pretty widespread regulation that would reside with the CRTC. And they're even talking about link licensing. And I think it's fair to say that in each instance, it gets at a kernel of a problem, but it takes, I think, in many respects, the wrong approach each time. Right. I mean, you should not be able to broadcast a suicide or a murder, and Russia and China should not be able to interfere or endanger our democracies, uh, you know, with their propaganda and, and meddling with our elections. But what they've done is decide to just charge us more and tell the uh, companies like Netflix, you know, you have to run CanCon, which essentially is what the CBC should do. Instead, what they do is obsess about, tr- you know, Trump. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, we could break down each of the, each of the issues, but I think you're right that some of the core problems that are out there, the misinformation, the foreign interference, those remain big issues. This doesn't really touch on those kinds of concerns at all. So, for example, they want to address the tax issue. And I think a lot of people have said that we need tax fairness, especially when some of these very large companies are clearly generating enormous revenues on a global basis, including mm-hmm. here in Canada, and pay, pay very little, if any anything in the way of income taxes. And yet, rather than pursuing that approach, which would, of course, increase governmental revenues and help support some of the kinds of programs that they want to see take place, they're targeting digital sales taxes. And it's not that it's a a big deal per se to say that we should have fairness with respect to digital sales taxes. But all that does is increase consumer costs, because on the digital sales tax side, it's consumers that pay those taxes. Netflix doesn't pay it. They simply collect and remit it onto the government. In fact, they can reduce some of their costs by collecting it because they get to offset some of the GST they may already be paying. So it doesn't come out of their pocket, it comes out of ours. And they're at least for the moment leaving untouched the source of revenue that wouldn't hurt consumers, but would increase governmental revenues. Right. The other area is is they want internet platforms to pay licensing fees for links to news articles. Um, Break that down for me so that 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 I have a true understanding. So we have a true understanding of, of that, because a lot of times people will put a news article up on and that becomes free content for the Internet. But but the news organizations like our company, we don't get paid for that. But you still want to share that information. But what they want to do, I mean, how do they expect to do this? 
Well, I mean, so I think it starts with the fact that, of course, that a lot, some of the many many of the media organizations are struggling, uh, and companies like Netflix are doing very well. And so, the, this government, like the government in Australia and a couple of others, are basically trying to direct to create a direct line between saying Facebook's doing well, media companies are not, and so we want to ensure that Facebook transfers over money onto these media companies. And the way that they've kind of targeted and that. Uh, Guibault in Canada has suggested he's interested in pursuing as well is to say that there should be some sort of licensing requirement for for social media sites like Facebook who carry news content. The problem with the proposal is that Facebook doesn't actually carry the full news stories. All they do is feature links to news stories that then refers users back to the original sites. And in fact, the the way that the sites generate revenue is through those referrals because then Mm -hmm. they can increase the ad revenue that they charge. So Facebook argues, I think not unreasonably, at least in Australia, that those referrals that of course don't cost anything to the media organizations are worth hundreds of millions in ad revenue itself. And so they're saying if what you're going to do is force us to get a license merely for those links, we're not posting the full articles, we're just allowing our users to post links, we're going to cut off news sharing altogether. And they reason that the, the reality is that those news articles may be very important to the news organizations, but in the context of people's feeds and, and Facebook itself, it's just not worth very much. Most people's feeds are filled with photos and videos and other bits of personal information, as well as a wide range of other stuff found on the Internet. The notion that a Globe and Mail or a Toronto Star or name your, name your media organization, that those articles are an important part of people's Facebook experience simply isn't the case. And so Facebook's position is, if you're going to require licenses for this, we're going to block news sharing altogether. And that will ultimately hurt the news organizations who will lose all those referrals. It'll hurt the public because we won't see that kind of sharing. And it will increase the amount of misinformation Mm -hmm. because sites that frankly don't care about that stuff are quite happy to find their stuff continually shared. Right. It creates a vacuum that will be filled by all the very fake news that, that people um, are now realizing is, uh, is so dangerous. Um, and the, essentially, I mean, they're censoring and want to control what we consume. I mean, Stephen Gubo, I mean, he got himself in quite a bit of trouble, as you recall, and we talked about on the show a few months ago, is that he announced he wanted to regulate the news and, and force independent or online news organizations to have to get licensed. Um, he called it immoral. Uh, is that still on the table or have they just tweaked it enough to to get it so that it's uh, not being seen? Well, they're very clearly still going to target many internet services. And in this case, what they want to do is target them for contributing to CanCon, which was really the origins of some of the stuff that Kibo was talking about a number of months ago. And in this context, he's really the, the plan appears to be to hand over huge new powers over to the CRTC, the Telecom and Broadcast Regulator, so that it can begin establishing new kinds of regulations that may involve what you see, the kind of content that appears on the site, as well as mandated contributions to help support the creation of Canadian content. It appears the the minister now recognizes that Netflix is actually the largest contributor to film and television production Mm -hmm. in Canada. But what he's getting at is he wants to ensure that there's more money for Indigenous film and television production, for um, persons of color, uh, their film and television production. And I think people would agree it would be great to see that kind of support. But whether or not we need a whole 
infrastructure devoted to regulating Internet services in order to hive off some additional money to support that kind of film and television production. Once again, surely there are better ways of achieving that policy goal that don't involve this kind of heavy-handed regulatory approach at the CRTC that will invariably involve years of litigation and big costs that ultimately really provide very little in the way of tangible results. Well, we do have it. It's called the CBC, and we give it a billion and a half dollars every year by this government. They should be carrying this kind of content, and they, you know, often are not. They're buying American productions. I mean, if they want to regulate something, do it there, which is a is a crown corporation. So I just, they've made a mess of this. And, and I, I fear, you know, their meddling is just going to make even more uh, of a mess without resolving anything. Yeah, I think there's, there's real reason for concern. And I think you're right that people aren't really paying a whole lot of attention, understandably so, as we find ourselves in the midst of a global pandemic. And for a government that, that early on, if we go back a number of years, uh, really saw the Internet as presenting some huge opportunities. They were kind of embracing the innovative potential. They've done a, a real shift in that regard and have really jumped on the regulate bandwagon. And while there is unquestionably a role for regulation and there are harms that are being identified that we need to tackle, the way they're going about doing this is really ultimately going to increase consumer cost. I think it ultimately undermines net neutrality and I think really invites a whole series of harms and problems that, that are simply unnecessary. There are better ways of doing this, and yet we see at least for the moment a heritage minister that seems bound and determined uh, to follow that kind of path. Well, the devil will be in the details, but it sure looks like a solution that will indeed find nothing but uh, more problems. Michael, we'll stay on this and uh, continue to look, because as you well know, uh, a lot of things get buried when throne speeches come down and these uh, bills are tabled. So it will definitely need some closer um, uh, scrutiny on this. But we will, of course, talk about it when it comes out. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, my next guest was a bit of a non-believer, maybe one of those anti-maskers who, like a lot of people, initially brushed off the pandemic, was then had his mind changed when he would be confronted by COVID-19 back in March. That's, of course, when Tim Okamura would find himself not only grieving the loss of a cousin who died from the disease, but then he got it himself. You know, it would start with a cough that he couldn't shake. And then it went down that, downhill from there for about two months. And at that time, of course, living in New York, he was also watching trucks roll up to collect the dead bodies. So he describes his experience with the virus like this. It's a bit of a five stages of grief. You know, there was the denial, the anger, bargaining, depression, and then he came to acceptance. And the experience of what he's been through has been so profound that this Canadian artist known for you know, paintings depicting social justice issues, things like Black Americans and racial equality. Well, when he got healthy, he decided to create a new collection in tribute to those who saved his life, those on the front lines, who he will gift with his works. Tim Okamara joins us now. Uh, good to have you with us because you're originally from Alberta, but you have been living in the U.S. You've been living in New York for decades now. Yeah. And I was struck by your story because like a lot of people, you know, and I, I guess I'll put myself in the category, you know, you don't believe it's going to happen until you get hit with it directly. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I think it was just the, the skepticism a little bit in the beginning. Uh, it was probably too early to really form a, a really solid opinion one way or another, but you know, like everybody, you're not 
so willing to accept, you know, the enormity of something that is life-changing happening to you. And as much as the chatter was kind of building up, uh, I'd actually gone to uh, London and Hamburg in early March, came back to New York around March 11th, and still, you know, even on the flight back, was seeing people wearing, a few people wearing masks and some wearing gloves and, and really, you know, being very cautious on the on the front side. And even though my cousin was sick with COVID, it was still one of those, you know, it's not going to happen to me type of scenarios in my head. And of course, early information as well really had to, you know, it emphasized that it was going to affect uh, people who had pre-existing conditions or more elderly people. And so that's when I, you know, I kind of went with that information and thought that I'd be fine. But uh, the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older and I'm, I may not be the healthiest person and maybe I don't want this. And And then I started to really, really pay attention to the news and do more research. And that's when I actually started wearing a mask, um, you know, right in the middle of March and and wearing gloves and, and being concerned. And then pretty much just a couple of days after that, uh, I started getting a cough and um, and a runny nose and still in the denial phase, I, I figured that it was just allergies. And then it wasn't until I took some allergy medication and it didn't help and nothing went away um, that I started to get a little worried. And then pretty much day four of having the cough is when I woke up with extreme chills. And it was really at that moment that I said, I've got, I've got COVID because I never get chills. <laughs> so, And how, now, how badly did you, I mean, you took two months to recover, but how sick did you get? You know, I've said it before that I, I, I've suffered worse from, you know, I very rarely get the flu, but I, I feel like I felt maybe a bit worse with other, uh, you know, coronavirus illness caused illnesses. Uh, even sometimes a bad cold, we have a really sore throat. I never got that. Um, so I, I definitely felt felt pretty lousy, but I also felt very lucky that I wasn't one of the people that had really severe complications and, and got really, really sick. I mean, I was still able to kind of function and, and work a little bit, but it was just the length of time and also the, the sort of strange order of the symptoms. Um, day five, I think I lost my sense of smell. Mm. Um, I, I, I lost uh, some of my sense of taste. But a lot of body aches, a lot of fatigue, and and the mental side of it, which again I can't pinpoint whether or not it was you know the circumstances surrounding, and obviously being, my cousin passed away right around that time. Um, there's a lot of external factors too, but I certainly felt a lot of um, kind of brain fog and confusion some days, lack of focus, uh, and then depression also. So um, it was really the, the first two weeks that I that I felt you know proper sort of sick, you know, and phys- physically, and then another six weeks of feeling like I had chronic fatigue. And, and, and that was very strange because I, I might wake up feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the day, it's like the feeling of if, if anybody's listening, that's ever had a hangover. <laughs> it's like, it's like having a hangover. Had a few. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, it was almost like six weeks of having a hangover. And uh, without the, the the nausea or anything, but just that really deep, uh, very tired, like, you know, bone tired kind of feeling where you, where you know when it comes on, you've got to stop what you're doing and go lie down and, and go sleep. So that that was very taxing. And, and you know, I say this and I'm not saying it even in jest. I mean, the one thing you did not lose is, is your talent um, because you're an artist and 
you know, you've done works in the past uh, of social justice kinds of issues, but yeah. you've now, you know, in your recovery, uh, I guess because of the profound impact this has had on you, you created this series called Healthcare Heroes. And I've been looking at this picture, uh, one of your pictures, and I honestly can't figure out if this is a person in real life or if this is a painting. <laughs> the the, the re- the realism to these pictures is unbelievable. Uh, so you didn't lose your talent and yeah. you're creating this series. Why? Well, I appreciate it. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, while being sick and while being, you know, while living across the street from a hospital that was hit really hard and just packed with COVID patients. And you mentioned the trucks, there was three refrigerator trucks that were set up outside the hospital as makeshift morgues because the hospital morgue filled up so quickly. Um, seeing the, the the workers going in and out of the hospital, seeing the fatigue, um, and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, having a chance, like, because they, because I live in the neighborhood, you know, they'd be going to get a coffee, I'd get a coffee and just sort of strike up a little conversation and just having that opportunity to hear about what they were going through and how they were, you know, really trying to persevere through as we all know, like really almost like a once in a lifetime um, traumatic uh, global event, it, it it just occurred to me like even though there's so much humbleness in 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 their overall disposition and and a lot of them you know saying like it's just us doing our job, but mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to do something to kind of honor them and do something that would um, be a little bit of my way of giving back. Um, Seven o'clock each night, you know, during the height of the pandemic, everybody would come out of their houses and, and lean out their windows and make noise and clap and applaud to show appreciation. And I did that a little bit, but I thought, you know, I, I can try to put my my skills to use. And so I, I came up with the idea to start doing some small portraits of some of the COVID unit nurses um, and a few of whom I met here in, in Brooklyn. And uh, so I'll be... exhibiting those and hopefully, um, you know, displaying those in a few different uh, ways. But the end result is I'm going to give those portraits to the nurses as sort of a thank you gift for their, for their heroism. It's unbelievable. I mean, they're, they're really quite stunning um, to, to, to see them. So so where would someone be able to see this exhibit if they're not, obviously, I mean, travel is not a big thing, certainly right right now. Is this an exhibit that is going to be shown? Is there an opportunity for people to buy these works, donate these works? Right. Um, Some of the smaller ones that are of the, the nurses individually will be given as a gift to those nurses. And then there are a few larger group portraits, uh, which will be for sale with the idea that 50% of proceeds from any sale will actually go to a charity of the healthcare workers choice. And so I'm also doing a a portrait of three um, of the attending physicians in the ER at the hospital across the street from me who uh, same thing, just dealt with some real tragedies with the COVID uh, patients. And um, again, they'll be able to, if we sell the painting, uh, uh, direct you know 50% of proceeds to charity of their choice. So the whole project is meant to be sort of collaborative in a way with with um, with those particular uh, healthcare workers. Um, but in terms of exhibition, uh, there is a conversation going on right now with the New York Historical Society and, and Museum here in New York City. Uh, they're already collecting uh, artifacts from this whole COVID pandemic experience in New York, and they are planning to do an exhibition. I think they want to include my work with that. 
And then I also was contacted. Because they all think that we want to remember 2020. Is that the case? Right. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, you know, it is, it is a big moment in history. Yeah. And, um, and I think that there's a lot to be learned from it. There's certainly a lot of introspection that it caused people. There's a lot of, you know, uh, just c- communication with loved ones and family. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there is good that's come out of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it definitely shook us all you know, to the core, I think, but it really caused, especially myself, you know, this kind of elevated consciousness about what's important in life and, and, and just how valuable life is and how, you know, something like this as chaotic and and kind of random in a way as, as this, um, as this virus was could come along and, and, and could end things for people. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it's there's there's a lot of mixed emotions behind the work, but I think it's it's something valuable and some something worth documenting, and that we can hopefully learn from and 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 um, you know deal with it in a stronger way next time. Well, there's no question when an artist uh, creates, it's always very personal. Um, but this one, especially as you say, because it uh, touched you so profoundly, and of course, as as we all are now with this pandemic nothing about life is ever going to be the same and and so it obviously has uh has had a, an effect on all of us tim the work is beautiful and i appreciate your time very much and uh happy health and good health moving forward to you yeah thank you so much i really appreciate it thanks for letting me tell my story so welcome back on this friday and a landmark national study reveals some pretty startling numbers one third of canadian women have thought about quitting their jobs to uh, take care of home responsibilities during this pandemic. And that's not a small number. Um, And I don't need to tell parents how stressful the shutdown's been. I mean, if you had kids, it was near impossible trying to balance work and then playing teacher and then also being a playmate. And then, of course, doing the dinner and the cooking and, and, and groceries that I got the list right. But I mean, what the study also highlights is that less than 20 percent of men thought about quitting their job, and likely because men tend to make more money in a dual-income home. So when you have to make that decision, who is going to quit the job? But we already know, because we've talked about it, that the data shows women have been hit worse than any other group in this um, particular time because they work in the sector's hardest hit. And that's why they're not really calling it a recession, but a she session. Pamela Jeffrey is with Prosperity Project. She is a founder of that and a big part of the study. Good to have you, Pamela. Thanks very much, Alex. And so these numbers are pretty startling because it almost erases a couple of decades of advancement for women in work. It does. In fact, um, it erases about three decades, Alex, and it's very discouraging. But I think the encouraging news and why we have hope is that people are talking about it. And we know conversations are happening over dinner tables as a result of this research to say, how can we create a better normal for our family? I think as a woman and a mom and someone who has a job, I mean, the one thing I learned during this pandemic is that you can't be all and everything because the demands are just too much. And so you kind of just have to do the best uh, that you can. And I was speaking with my husband last night about this particular study, knowing that we were going to talk about it. We both have good jobs, but I said, the reality is if one of us had to quit the job, it would be me because I make less money than you. And the look on his face was a shock because I have a good career But if you're going to make the decisions at home about who stays home, oftentimes it will be the woman. 
And, you know, I'm not surprised that your husband looked at you in shock because I think women for a long time have kept this to themselves and have really struggled through the last few months. And I think, too, that I've heard from lots of men, they enjoy having a second income mm-hmm. because if, there's, if, they're, if they're earning the income uh, and they're it, and all of a sudden they lose their job, there's no backup. So it's, it's a good plan if you agree as a couple to have both mom and dad working. Yeah. And look, he readily admits I work 10 times harder than he does. I mean, he watches it. He can't believe it. But it is just the reality of the situation facing so many uh, households. And, and and certainly, I mean, the other side of this, this study does talk about the longstanding ter- stereotypes that still exist and that women do tend to carry more of the home um, making rules. Um, I mean, look, and especially if you have younger children, I mean, they always go to mom. Yeah, they always go to mom. And I, I find um, now that women are having the conversations with their partners on, you know, is there, given that we're in this together, in a healthy relationship, you have a really good conversation about how can we work as a team? And perhaps you could do some grocery shopping. Um, if I can't get out the door, um, here's a list. Uh cooking the occasional dinner, just getting into some new habits and helping create a better normal. Those are the conversations that I think we as Canadians need to have. Uh, And that's going to help us get through this because we're not going to have an economic recovery if household spending plummets. And, you know, household spending makes up more than half of the economy. And if families uh, reduce their spending because their incomes have fallen significantly because mom stops working uh, they're not going to be able to buy the things they're used to buying and then there's going to be the stress of making mortgage and car payments and rent payments on one income so so we're encouraging folks just to sit down and have a conversation and see if there can be a little bit of the shifting of the responsibilities at home yeah, and we did that early on, and I'm lucky because my husband couldn't as much as heat a glass of water, and now he's doing the dinners and cleaning up and doing all sorts of stuff, and it's taken an enormous amount of pressure off of me, and it does really, truly help. I think it's interesting, though, the study also looks into the emotional side of this, and and, and more women tend to carry guilt than men um, in spending time with their children. And, and I'm one of these women, there is absolutely nothing wrong with a woman staying home to take care of children. I think it's a, a phenomenal um, and very important part for a child's life. So I don't have an issue with that, but it's just simply that women couldn't juggle the workload, but then there's a guilt factor of all these hours being spent at work and your child might be home and you still can't play with them and spend the time with them that they need and want. And they simply don't understand why. Well, Alex, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I've been a working mom full time uh, my whole adult life. Uh, I had children in my late 20s. And so uh, I found it really difficult uh, to, to do it as working mothers do. And I have to say, tell you a little personal story, which is that uh, my boys are now 26 and 28. Mm-hmm. So now you know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, my boys uh, each came to me separately in their early 20s. And I don't know what prompted it, but they said to me, you know, mom, uh, we just want to say that we now, I, I now realize uh, what you did for us. Mm-hmm. I now realize that um, 
even though I wasn't happy that you weren't at every school event, uh, you, you were at most of them. And I just want to say I recognize everything you did. And well, that was really nice. And I don't think my kids are alone in saying that to, to, to working moms. Yeah, it, it, it's a terrific, it's a terrific um, acknowledgement. And I had my son in, in my 40s. So that tells you how old I am. But, you know, the pandemic itself, um, it's it's changed everything and forced everything to pivot and reinvent itself. And we're looking at a throne speech in the next week and a half. And there's no question there's going to be something on childcare in that. Uh, what do you think that needs to look like? I think that parents need to be able to make the choice and know that if they make the choice to enroll their kids in uh, preschool care or in before school care or after school care, once the kids get to school, I think parents need to have affordability. And I think they need to have quality, of course, and that they need to have flexibility because child care um, were initially set up along the lines of nine to five. Yeah, absolutely. And nine to five just doesn't hold water anymore. Mm -hmm. We're in a 24 seven work world and with women who are essential workers, mm -hmm. who don't have the ability to work from home, mm -hmm. don't have the privilege of being able to work from home, but who are being scheduled into shifts, they need that flexibility more than anyone else. And so that's what we're looking for in the speech from the throne is yep. is affordable, quality, and flexible. Flexibility, for sure, and that might mean regulation changes to allow childcare to be at night. I mean, I do I do a night show. Uh, I'm a prime example of, of someone who's really struggled with childcare. Um, you know, if I weren't able to do my show out of the house right now, it would be a disaster, but you're right. Um, I think uh, it's not necessarily that we have to just throw money at it. It's that we have to be creative with our thinking in the year of 2020, so... And I think, Alex, too, we've got a made in Canada solution. It's interesting. You look at the international uh, research that's done on childcare globally, and Quebec is called out as mm -hmm. an example uh, of a model where parents do pay, uh, but it is, it is not a large amount of money, $10 a day, as I understand it. Uh, and I understand, too, that perhaps families that can't pay can make contributions in other ways. But um, but let's get at it. We've been talking about this for far too long. Indeed we have. I appreciate your time, Pamela, on this. We'll continue watching the data and see where it takes us and if we actually see the changes. But I do appreciate you joining us on this Friday night. Thank you. Thanks very much for the invitation, Alex. That is your podcast for today. You can hear us, of course, Monday through Friday, live on point, starting at 6.30 through 10. I'm Alex Pearson.